I am Brad Levitt, host and founder of A Finer Test Construction. We are super excited to bring this amazing guest list to you of people that specialize in business, marketing, social media, entrepreneurship, and most of all, how to build a great company. AFT is a local commercial and residential general contractor located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and we are continuously seeking ways to bring value to our industry clients and network. Please subscribe to us on Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. And today on the podcast, we are fortunate to bring on Jason and Mark with Beyond Build Constructions, and they are based out of Sydney, Australia. And the reason we brought on Jason and Mark, their co-owner, so we spoke a little bit about their relationship and partnership in the company and how they've worked on the handoff, who's responsible for what portion of the company. Some of us may have business partners and how do you effectively run a company with a business partner as opposed to being a sole proprietor or single company owner. So that was great. We also spoke heavily on mistakes in our career, how we can utilize those, how we can learn from those and make them you know, better for us in the future. Jason and Mark are really uh, keen to company culture and mindset, you know, how they do team building and involve their team with their company culture to build that camaraderie, right? To build that strong uh, company. We also spoke about um, value. How do we offer value? How do we showcase that value to our customer base, to our architects, to our designers, to our builders in that network? How do we showcase that? And and how are we marketing that? They're really big on marketing and showcasing that value. And even more so, a lot of us in this industry spend a lot of time chasing leads and working with customers only to have the project stall and not move forward to go to someone else. And Jason and Mark have a great system of how they vet their clients and charge them a consultation fee. So we dive into that a little bit. And most of all, again, it was great to understand some of the differences in design, construction techniques, and aesthetics in comparison here in the United States as opposed to Australia. And a big thanks to our sponsor, Sub-Zero Group Southwest, for making this show possible. So if you're starting a new kitchen project, the Sub-Zero Wolf & Cove showroom is the place to start. It provides an immersive environment to help you realize the possibilities of your future kitchen. Discover what it may feel like, look like, taste like, all in an exploratory, no-pressure showroom. No matter who you are, consumer, owner, or member of the trade community, the showroom is ready to assist you throughout the entire project. I visit the Sub-Zero Wolf & Cove showroom in Orscasa quite often. In fact, it's just here a few blocks from my office, so it's the perfect place to meet with my clients and the designer on the project. When we arrive, we meet with a showroom consultant whose sole focus is catering the visit to our needs. They seek to understand what products may be best suited for the client, and then explain and demonstrate special features and functionality. We can browse the complete line of Sub-Zero Wolf & Cove appliances and then view them in beautifully designed vignettes helping my clients envision how the appliances might look like in their home. The best part is that the consumers can interact with the products, turn the knobs, open the drawers, and ignite the flames, discovering the best fit for them. With the help of a showroom consultant, each visit is truly unique to the client. The relationship with the showroom does not end with the appliance selection process. Throughout the entire project, the showroom team is there to provide helpful solutions and offer advice and assistance. After appliances are installed, owners can expect a lifetime of support and helpful resources. The Sub-Zero Wolf & Cove showroom is the place to start, experience, and bring your vision to life. Schedule an appointment at your near showroom by visiting www.subzero-wolf.com backslash showroom. So I'm Brad Levitt with the AFT Construction Podcast, and today we're fortunate to have co-owners Jason and Mark with Beyond Bill Constructions. Welcome, guys. Thanks, Brad. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for having us. How are you, mate? Doing very good. And you may notice, you know, from Jason's mate there that uh, they're joining us from Australia. So it's it's good to have you from such a long distance. Yeah, cheers. It's good to be here. So one thing I noticed, you know, that I want to dive into first is the company culture. You know, that's really big. And, you know, you two seem to have perfected that. I saw that video on your website about, you know, the the company outing and just, you know, how, how you're empowering your team. So let me ask you this. What What is something that employers should be doing to create a happy and engaged you know, atmosphere for their employees. I think it's uh, I think it's quite big on our priority list to make sure that everyone's cohesive and and everyone gets along. And you know, we're a building company at the at the start of the day, but at the end of the day, you know, everyone needs to to enjoy coming to work. And we are quite big on culture and investing in in you know external activities and and not so much just just work all day. You know, as you said, we've we've had a few team training days, whether that be personal trainer on the beach before work or we regularly do an employee of the quarter where we we try and praise you know the that employee who's specifically you know sort of stood yeah, up. we normally put on a barbecue for that and yeah. we all sort of hang around the factory and and have a chat and 
our guys quite regularly sort of hang out on the weekends and they'll go to the gym together, they'll go to breakfast together, they'll go, you know, to the pub together. So they all sort of try to hang out on the weekends as well. We're quite a we're quite a young team as well. So everyone has very similar interests and um, you know, we try and we try and team up guys who are compatible with each other on site so they, they enjoy coming to work. You know, it's it's a long long career for some some a lot of a lot of people that don't enjoy what they do and you know it's if you've got to enjoy your career for for it to you know really get through life and and that's pretty big on our priority list for our guys you know if we keep them happy and everyone's enjoying coming to work and the culture's quite prevalent then we feel like you know things seem to go a lot smoother so, yeah, yeah it's true it, it it's funny because you know construction is a tough business as we know construction architecture design and the reality is being a business owner is tough there's a lot of ups and downs and so the more you create a culture where people are vested, where they enjoy coming to work and it kind of takes them through those low points of the day when, you know, your subcontractors or your trade base is not performing, clients upset, you know, all those things come into play. So how often would you recommend doing, you know, team building as you guys do? You said once a quarter you're doing, you know, employee of the quarter, you know, is it something you're doing once a quarter as a team building? Do you recommend doing that more? Yeah, definitely more. We have a every Thursday we sit down with our foremans and and sit down in the office and and really see what's working on site and what isn't. And you know, every uh, every every month or so we schedule a chat with with our younger guys and they come through and you know not just work issues but anything outside of work. We're happy to sort of guide them in the right path. You know, we take a bit of responsibility as as mentors as well as business owners and really want to make sure everyone's you know happy and and we're quite high on on sort of mental health and trying to look after our guys in that front but i don't think you can really put a time on it it's just when it feels right you know to just just sit down and and just take a step backwards you know instead of we expect a a lot of our guys do quite long days and overtime and and if that isn't rewarded then it can really become a one-way street so we really feel like it's you can't really overdo it yeah you, you sort of get a feel for it when you know, you can sort of tell the boys sort of need that that chat and that lift and, and the boost and everyone sort of comes together and, you know, sort of praises what they've been doing right and has, has a bit of a chat what they need to work on. But, yeah, I, I think Jace is right. You definitely get a feel for when it needs to happen. Mm. Well, I, I like that you said that every Thursday you're meeting with your foremans. Now, one thing I've picked up from other companies is they do this once-a-week call, whether it be a go-to meeting, mm. a Zoom call, or, or they're meeting in person when they can. And, and they're asking, you know, like, okay, Mark, on your projects, you know, are you having any issues with your subs? What's next on schedule? You know, how's so-and-so performing? Yeah, you know, exactly. And, and the same thing with you, Jason, on your projects. And so what ends up happening is as a team, you're collaborating while well, I'm having this issue on my project or these people aren't showing up or maybe you're splitting drywallers on both projects and you're trying to say, okay, well, who's more urgent? Who needs to take that crew first? You know, yeah. so I've seen advantages, as you mentioned, to that. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's so reflective in our industry, even on the other side of the world, you know, I'm sure we all go through the same challenges and goals, but it's, uh, it's something that's, that's quite small on our end. And we've been doing it for a little over 18 months now. And, and, you know, when we're busy, it sort of gets put on the back burner, but that meeting, and we really feel that further down the track, you know, there's seems to be more issues that that are arising because we're not slowing down. We're not taking that time to sit down and ask the guys on site what's happening, you know, what's working, what isn't working, who's giving you grief, what can we do better, what can Mark and I do better to, you know, make your building on site and your experience better. And it's all, it goes a long way, you know, it's just a, even a brainstorming session for an hour, an hour and a half every week. And, you know, sometimes that meeting might end in a beer or, or two with the guys afterwards. So it's pretty casual, but you know, once again, we, we seem to get a lot of value out of it. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, and everyone's got their own opinion, I guess, in those meetings. So someone might flag something that, you know, another guy might not think is a, is a big issue or he has a, you know a solution for that you know is better than ours and it's just more of a brainstorming thing everyone has a bit of input and comes together and mm. sorts it out together i guess yeah exactly well i love that because what's really important is you think about any successful company i mean your, your goal is to not make the same mistake twice right so Absolutely. if you know if if one of you jason or mark or myself brad you know if i'm making a mistake i want to make sure that as a team we sit down not to throw anyone under the bus but that we're communicating hey we just had this issue we missed this, you know, uh, you know, we had this lack of communication with the customer. 
whatever it may be. And let's let's address as a team. Let's make everyone aware so that everyone's kind of being educated on that same mistake so we don't make it again. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, and if it means that, you know, the guys are happy to put their hand up and we're human, Brad, you know, everyone makes mistakes. But as you said, if we can eliminate that happening on the next project, you know, where where they might be up to that stage in a month's time, oh, hey, guys, I did this, I'd probably do this differently next time. And, and it really eliminates that. You're right. Errors, errors are inevitable, but errors happening twice, you know, they're usually avoidable. So, I think it's it's quite beneficial in that sense. Yeah, and we've I mean we've had that like any company, and we we can dive into that. And so, you know, as as far as the company goes, all of us make mistakes, and we have lapses in communication, you know. And but it's something we learn from. So, what are you know being a young entrepreneurs that both of you are, you know, starting your company? I mean, I'm sure there's been some bumps and bruises along the way. What are some of the mistakes that you've had as a company that have now made you better today because of it? Uh, look, I'm, I'm a bit of a yes man, to be honest. I do a lot of the pre-construction, the preliminary process, pretty much get it to, to commencement date and hand it over to Mark and he'll do yeah. he'll do the project management side. So I quite often will get a, a call, like I will speak during the day and Jason will be going to a meeting or something and he's like, you know, we don't want to commit in this in this time frame or, or something like that. And and then Jason will come out of the meeting and he'll, he'll give me a call and go, you're going to hate me, like I've just committed to another job in this time frame. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm terrible at saying no, you know, if there's one thing that I, uh, that's a big weakness of mine, it's, it's really stepping in and, and overloading the guys and it's not fair on them sometimes as well. So I guess between that and, and smaller projects, when we were in that growth period, um, chewing up a lot of our resources, I think we probably could have targeted our, our market, um, a little bit more specific rather than just saying yes to anything that fell in our lap. And, um, you know, there's some projects we're set up for, some we aren't, but we've seen that, you know, a lot of the smaller projects uh, chew up a lot of our resources more so than the bigger ones that we were probably going for at that growth stage. So I think I think learning when to say no and learning when to not overbook, and obviously that's a scheduling issue as well, but really knowing when to sort of put your foot down and, and say to clients, and I, I still find it very, very hard. I'm not sure if you're in the same boat, but just, you know, just re- just rejecting a client when the timing's not right for us, you know. I think well, that's that, big well it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting you said that. I'm going to build upon that because it's funny. I think we've all been in that situation. I'm sure many listening have nodded their head. Yeah, you want to be a yes person. You want the sale. Mm-hmm. You want to make that commitment. You want to keep the client happy. And sometimes you commit yourself to something you can't perform to. You know, but before we get into maybe your wheelhouse or what your company's good at, you know, it's really easy as a company, uh, or uh, not easy, but I'd say that most of us in this industry understand the ebbs and flows of construction, right? It goes up and down, the market does, and it's really hard to turn down work in our field. And there's a few reasons. Mm. I mean, one of the reasons we don't turn down work is because, you know, it's feast or famine. When it's good, you got to work really hard in preparation. And then number two is you don't want to give the impression in the industry that people are reaching out. Oh, you know, we reached out to Jason and Mark. They're too busy. They're too busy. Which ends exactly. up, exactly. you know, that that gets around town. It kills the leads. So how how as a company have you started to develop to say, we understand when you get this lead generation, we're good at that. We're going to pursue it, or we're not good at that. This is not a good fit. How do you decipher between the two? Oh, we're definitely we're definitely still learning yeah. to do that. We're, yeah. we're probably still still something that we're definitely working on. We're, we still struggle to say say no. Um, I um I personally take a lot of responsibility in qualifying the leads when they come through. So, so we, how do you qualify? Uh, how do you qualify, Jason? Uh, generally a phone chat. If we're first point of contact, we'll um and clients haven't got any plans. We do have a couple of local architects and building designers that we work with. Uh, we do like to be engaged early in that process, but I, um, you know, if we get a, a lead through through our socials or on Instagram or on our website, I'll generally try and have a, a phone call with them, 10, 15 minutes, um, and I'll generally just try and get a feel for the project. Um, you know, the area, timing's a big one, um, and the scale. And if it all seems to line up and align, I'll, um, I'll usually, a lot of guys would on their own time, voluntary, come out to site, spend sort of two or three months going through this process to find out the budget doesn't align with the scope. So I'll try and, you know, we we charge a fee-based proposal um, to come out to site and, and meet the clients. And if they're willing to happy 
to pay for our time um, at that initial meeting, like any engineer or architect that generally does, but the builder seems to not not always get that uh, call-out fee, so to speak. Um, if they're generally happy to pay that small fee, then you know they they sort of fall into our qualification list, and we'll pursue further. But if uh, if clients are, are reluctant to see the value, um, then you know we might not be the right fit. So it seems to um, really qualify them sooner. So I guess the three things that need to hit it is is timing, scale of project, and commitment. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you this: when so you if if I understand you correctly, when someone calls you and says, hey, Jason and Mark, I'd love to have you work on my project. There's an initial fee for your time, either commute, you know, time on site to evaluate the project, job site location that you're given to that client. Yeah, correct. It's quite small. So the usual process is um, I'll have that 10, 15 minute phone call. Um, then I'll head out to site, have a scale of the project, um, do a walkthrough. It'll take maybe half an hour or 45 minutes, come back and prepare a budget estimate. Um, organize the second meeting um, and go through and just make sure everything aligns. And for that, we charge $250. Um, so it's quite small. It's quite a small fee for probably something that takes me seven or eight hours. But, you know, if they, if our but clients But skin are in like, the game. Yeah, there's skin in the exactly. game. There's some investment from them. Exactly. And it's showing some sort of commitment and, you know, probably shows that they're not paying five, 10 builders to do the same. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's by all means not about, making money it's about sort of getting that commitment from the clients and and if the project does proceed that fee does come off off the uh end scope of work so that's something that we found you know i'm sure a lot of builders do go through the same but there's a lot of clients out there that that are happy to to use our time without any commitment so that's something that we've found quite beneficial and it sort of draws that line in the sand between being professional and and you know just being a just a, I don't know, a general, a general carpenter that's looking to come hang a few doors for them. Sort of draws that line in the sand we found. Well, I love that you do that, and and here's why. So many people listening either haven't done that, or they want to get to that point where they're charging for a bid, whether they're charging for the consultation appointment or an estimate. And I think it's important that all of us do that in the industry. And the reason being is is we need to understand what our clients value, right? There's ways that we mm. can represent that. We can show that through marketing through social media and other things to our clients. But what's really important is that if there's a potential client that's going to reach out to six builders and say, hey, give me a bid, yeah, really what they're valuing is price. And that's absolutely. And, and most of us don't fit in that scope. It's not that we're expensive. It's just there's different values we offer, whether it, we're communicative or we're punctual or we do good quality or responsive, you know, mm-hmm. and, and there's value to that. There's a price involved. And so mm-hmm. I love that you said that because um, – one thing we have not done, those consults, you know, I, I do vet the customer and I try to get a good feel for them, as do you. You know, what's your budget? What's your time frame? Do you have yeah. an architect? Do you have a designer? We love to put the team together, work in pre-construction. Here's our retainer that will work yeah. with you through pre-construction, credit at the build. Very mm-hmm. similar. But what I found is and what I've learned is that over the years now as a builder, if I get a cold call and they say, hey, Brad, we're reaching out to four builders. You're one of them. Mm-hmm. I give them a fee. If you want me to bid this you know, $10,000 for a bid. Yeah. But, but here's why. It's not just, you know, we're going to put 40, 50, 60 hours. We're going to dilate scope, you know, yeah. go through this and put it out there. And so there's time vested from my team mm. that to take them serious. And I've had clients say, I really respect that. And I had some that say, get out of here. You know, that's not for me. Absolutely. Yeah. And they're probably not the clients that you really want to work with. But I guess, Brad, you've done such a great job at, at showing value that that you do as a builder, especially the scale of some of your projects. But, and, you know, as you said, it's, it's, we're not necessarily want to compete on price. We're not the cheapest. We're not the most expensive. We do fall somewhere in the middle, but that's not something that, you know, if, if a client's looking for the cheapest project, they probably don't see the value in what we do, you know? Um, So yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. So as a young, you know, business, you know, I'm a fairly young business. You guys are. You know, what are ways to show that value? Because you do offer something that's really great, you know, for your customers. So, you know, what are some different ways to show that value that you guys bring? Showcasing it on social media is a big one. Yeah, I think in this, you know, in this current time and and climate that we live in, I think 
being able to showcase your projects through a platform, whether it be uh, online or or through socials, um, I think that's a huge leg up, and I think it's a big investment that that a lot of sort of small businesses should be looking into, whether it's you know Facebook, Instagram, even LinkedIn, or it's all you know it all goes quite a long way to to be able to provide your value before clients even um, you know pick up the call and pick up the phone. I mean, a lot of our leads probably do start at word of mouth, which we like because we've already got that sort of foot in the door and, you know, we've got some clients that, that are willing and happy to sort of put our name forward. And I think having the platforms there that enable um, these potential clients to see what we do, um, not just, hey, this is a referral, call such and such, they did a really good job in our house two or three years ago. They'll do that. They'll, you know, Google search or Instagram or Facebook and and then they'll see our platform. They'll see our team. They can put a name to the face of the name and and before they even call us, they already know what sort of, you know, what sort of projects we do, the the quality we work to, the culture that we seem to bring within our within our company. So um, I think in that in that sense, the that provides a, a lot of input. I think 90% mm. of people that we'd get phone calls from would have seen either our Instagram or our website for sure. Yeah. Like they've done their background research and, and had a look at the work that we've done previously. I think, yeah. Well, and I love that you said that. I mean, the reality is, you know, I've been on your website and what I like about your website, you know, it, it catches your eye in the beginning. And so we're going to have that tag for our listeners so they can come look at it. But what I really like is right in the, be- the beginning, you have this great video, right? It's yeah. a minute long and, and it has you know, some very creative elements to it, right? It's showcasing homes under construction, you know, the tool bag on, it kind of shows just the passion of the team and then it rolls into the finishes, right? And so in essence, you're creating an emotional yeah. journey, a story for the the user to follow along. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's that's exactly the goal. So it's very refreshing to hear that. And I'll um, be passing on the praise, definitely. <laughs> no, it's, it's very well done. It's funny, I had... um. Danny Wang on the podcast a while ago, and he's just huge on video content. It's like, you can't have enough video content. And the one thing I'll say to anyone listening is, is going back to Instagram, which is very easy to do this is through stories is you can build the personality. And what I love is over the years, you know, getting comfortable with that platform and LinkedIn as well, is that, you know, I can showcase stories of my team, the culture, the product, our process, you know, behind the scenes. And so what's up happening you know, word of mouth is great, but what ends up happening is you start building an audience and a support system in the public of people that feel like they know you. They feel like they know your systems and and it creates a comfort level that now makes that sell easier for mm-hmm. business development. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we're we're still quite fresh and young and, and we decided to start investing in our in our socials and marketing pretty pretty early on pretty yeah. early on but also you know quite quite recently tried to ramp it up with yeah. our with our on-site daily stories you know we've we've got that um a title page for each project running and and each foreman and they'll send in to a to a whatsapp group um daily daily updates small videos and just snippets and you know we try and get them to talk on camera and it's something that that we like to sort of you know, showcase their work as well and put a name to their name to their projects. And yeah, we, we find it very valuable. Have you found that different platforms work better than the others? What's your number one lead producing social media platform you're using? Uh, look, we we probably invest most in, in Instagram. I don't think we get many DMs directly, um, you know, asking if, if we can, we get a lot from trades and suppliers and whatnot wanting to collaborate, which is great. But in terms of landing leads and clients, I think it's kind of a funnel, which will direct them to our website, mm-hmm. um, which is probably our number one platform where where we'll find leads or whatnot, or, you know, a lot of phone calls and they'll say, hey, we, we've looked up you know we heard your name we saw you on instagram or yeah we we heard you somewhere yeah i don't think it's a direct sort of lead magnet so to speak um but yeah we we definitely but it's a landing page it's absolutely it's a landing page yeah, and that's the thing with Instagram is it's it's a working resume. It's a it's a landing yeah. page for people to you know it's a, easy, a soft sell for you guys, you know. And and earlier in the conversation, you mentioned that you love to be involved in the beginning, which is same as me. You want to be involved and and carry that process for the customer. So is that by intent that you don't do in house design, in house architecture, that you're building that relationship and that network for referral and camaraderie? I mean, what's the strategy behind the architect designer outsource? 
So, I mean, probably probably long term. Yeah, it's something we, we want to work. We definitely to. want to work towards yeah. uh, bringing it in house. I mean, at the start, I guess um, it comes down to learning as well. We sort of dipped our toe in and, and said, you know, we'll, we want to start being involved in the design process. We were we were finding early days, Brad, that clients were calling us and. We'd worked with a bunch of local architects and we'd sort of, you know, flick them on their details and and hope to hear back from them, you know, in three, six months when the approvals come through and we've got some draft and concepts. Um, so it was actually Mark's idea early on in the piece that, hey, let's find, let's team up with the with a local architect who's uh, Jake from Shire Building Design for most of our most of our projects and he'll um, he'll be there with us through the preliminary process. Um, we'll meet there on site. He'll sort of take the reins. He'll um, uh, we'll sit down and he'll get the concepts. We'll catch up with the clients, and we're we're present maybe four or five meetings before um, the approval comes through and and the actual scopes and and everything starts going. We start going into that tender process, um, and we're we're happy to sit down with the engineers and. You know, as I'm sure you find as well, a lot of engineers will just design straight out of the book, um, whereas we can find more efficient ways um, to build. I mean, we're, we're all carpenters by trade, so where we can get away with using structural steel usually ends up in a, you know, more efficient component for us, for our clients, and we pass on the savings. Where, Whereas a lot of the time, clients are coming to us with their plans um, telling us their budget and the plans are exceeding their budget by 20, 30, 50, 60 percent sometimes because they hadn't had that builder engaged early. So we really like to voice our opinions, um, you know, without treading on the design too much, but it, it's worked really, really well. So we also well, I think, found. Uh, oh, go ahead, Mark. Yeah. Go ahead. We also found that, you know, um, we were hearing from these people directing them to someone they'd sort of go deal with an architect they might meet another builder along the way as well um and then we might not hear back from them this way we sort of follow them through the journey and and um, work with them hold their hands yeah so yeah basically and and you know we we have our input of what we think is good and and all that kind of stuff as well but um yeah we just find that we stay engaged with them right up until they start building basically no that's interesting i love that you said that because you know going back to the pre-construction part you know, the, the the one issue we all have is all of our clients have a budget. It doesn't matter what scale mm. they're at, you know, entry level to high end luxury. They still have a budget that they want to be within. Absolutely. And everyone sees all the eye candy out there through design. And it's mm. really important that the builders involved with the architect and design team early to have those budgets set that. And as you mentioned, you know, OK, for the design aesthetic, we have this big multi slider. Let's go mm -hmm. to a steel I-beam in, yeah. in lieu of a big glue lamp because it's going to be more narrow, right? It's not, you know, the depth and the span can be bigger and we weren't going to have any sagging over time. And so there's input that you can give, you know, so how that, that, that there's a fine line there. When you have the budget, Jason, when you've met with the client, mm. you've done that 250 consultation, mm. you've given them an overall budget. Okay. Now we're in design. How are you monitoring and managing that designer and architect to make sure mm. that you're within five, 10, 15% of your original budget? and not 50% over. Absolutely. So our, our architects that we, we generally work with will design, uh, including a contingency, and say the budget might be 600000 Most of our market is anywhere between maybe $400,000 projects and $1.5 sort of that sort of lower end but sort of high end um, renovations, additions, extensions, and, you know, dual locks and whatnot in more recent times. So we'll sit down and, and work with that budget. And the more transparent the client can be with us, the longer, uh, the further it's going to go, the easier the process is. And, you know, we're just quite transparent through, along the way. Um, we'll, we'll design to that budget. We'll sit down with concepts. Uh, the architect will will come through with their design. So there's quite a fine line there between treading on their toes and and let, not letting them be creative because they're trying to narrow down to this budget. So they'll basically work on floor plans and try and get the rooms and the space that's accessible. Um, and then I guess we can tweak finishes and, and you know, lightweight construction as opposed to concrete and, and steel and really try and achieve that overall feel within the budget. Then... 
along the way, the architect might suggest, hey, you know, I want these really great retractable louver screens, electric screens look great, you know, to shut off the western sun that comes through. But give the client that conscious decision of, hey, it's going to add 20 grand to your overall budget. Rather than a lot of architects will just throw that stuff in. The client will be super invested in the design. They'll love everything. And then I've got to be the bearer of bad news and come in and say, well, you know, you can't afford this. And, well, we love the design. I'm like, well, unfortunately, you know, I think you might have, your, client, your architect maybe not have really factored in budget. And then a lot of the times and not, Brad, I'll be dissecting the architect's design. And and it sucks, you know, being the bearer of bad news and, and telling these these people that they're so invested in the design, sorry, your budget won't won't admit this we can't do this we've got to pull this out you know and that's how we're starting this 12 18 month relationship me basically telling them hey i'm sorry we can't we can't do this for for what it costs but if we give them the conscious decision early they know that's planted in the back of their seat and they know hey if we want this it's going to cost this and they can weigh up that call i i love that you said that what's really important you know to think of it for any builders listening or any designer architect, what's really important is you said, know your numbers, understand the budget, right? And put that out there. And the reason being is because some of our clients have the money and they may say, that's fine. I'm willing to upgrade it. If I want these electric screens to protect mm. me with that West facing sun in Australia yeah. or Phoenix, Phoenix in July, right? Where it's super hot. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. we're given that option, but the only way we can do that is by knowing our numbers. So what's great that I love that you said too is you talked about finished budgets. And this is where a designer, yeah. if they have a builder, they should be asking, what are my budgets? Where are my budgets? Absolutely. Because if, if we can say, hey, look, designer, I'm going to give you $12 a square foot. I know our measurement system is different here in the US, yeah. but yeah. $12 a square foot for wood flooring. And yeah. you know, on the backsplash, I'm going to give you you know $18 a square foot. The laundry room tile is going to be $22 a square foot. You know, So you can do some fun. Now the designer can stay within that that meets the overall budget. And then if the client says, hey, I want this laundry room tile that's $100 a square foot. Yeah. Okay, that's fine. We budgeted 22. Mm-hmm. Here's the cost difference. And now they can make that conscious decision, which is the exact words you use. Exactly. And I'm sure we go through it, obviously, a different scale of projects, but we, we have the same issues along the way. But I think if you can really put that back in, in your client's decision, rather than pigeonholing them in, then... You know, I think it's a much more fairer, transparent process and, and really keeps that relationship fruitful through the pre-con stage. Yeah. Well, what's funny is we talked about mistakes earlier. And one of the mistakes I made earlier in my career is a client would say, or the designer, oh, I love this tile and I love mm-hmm. this wood flooring and I want this, uh, you know, electric screen or whatever it may be. And we're like, sure. Yeah, let's do it. Then you come to price and they're like, hold on, Brad, you are so far over you're not close. Whereas now it's a lot easier to be stern and say, no, this is our budget. This is where you want to be. However, it's your decision, but here's all the information for you. Yeah, Exactly. And I guess you kind of look at it in a comparable industry, Uh, say uh, buying a new car, right? You go in and you look at the base model Toyota and it's, you know how much that is, but when you want to add four wheel drive and leather seats and, and heating and you know, racks on top, whatever it so be, um, they know that they're making that conscious thought and this is their sort of base rate and they're making that decision. So on a obviously a different scale, but it's the same sort of uh, reference, I guess. Well, and and t- to that point, I think it's important we answer a few things. It's funny when we were talking about vetting clients and one thing I struggled with when customers would call me and say, hey, Brad, what, you know, you know and I'd ask them, well, do you have a budget for this? Do you have a budget? And they would say, I don't know. What's your cost? You know, and I'm like, okay, well, typically we're building between X and Y. Or mm. here's a sample. Here's a house we did that's X dollars a square foot. You know, mm. because otherwise it becomes, you know, a guessing game. And it's funny because the analogy I always use is if I were to go to you, Jason and Mark, and I'd say, how much is it for a bag of groceries? Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. What do you have in the grocery bag, right? What do you pick them yeah. from the supermarket? So yeah. it's very similar with the house. How much does it cost you? You know, how much is your cost to build a house? Well, it's just as the same as saying how much for a bag of groceries. What yeah. are the options? What are the upgrades? What's the square footage? Is it hillside? Is it flat lot? You know, what's the type of construction? So it's really important that we educate ourselves and understand how to communicate that with the customer and give them analogies that they understand. And then say, look, if you struggle with what that budget will give you, let me show you my portfolio. This yeah. house is your budget. 
here's the level of finishes, level of upgrades. At least they have a good idea. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, it's building custom homes is, I think, with you know the two we have here is custom and project homes i believe you guys call them spec homes but yeah you know that basically you're picking something off the plan and putting it in you probably can put that square square meter or square footage rate on that project but you know a lot of our market is everything is completely custom you know it's nothing's the same where we work on a lot of sort of you know 150 year old victorian style terraces that are only um four meters wide or you know 12 feet wide and and the square the square meter rate for an extension on something like that is obviously going to be quite larger as opposed to a brand new dual lock home, you know, in the suburbs. So it's quite a it's quite a big bag of groceries, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> so I I love that you get those analogies of the Victorian tight, you know, four meter. Did you say four meter wide? Yeah, four meter wide. So that is narrow. Wow, eight, that's amazing. Feet. So, so let me ask you, what are some of the different construction types? Being that you're in Australia, we're here in the United States, you know, how does construction differ in, in your neck of the world? So we're, we're based in Sydney um, and we seem to have uh, a lot of a lot of variables, you know, where we're based in Sydney South, which is probably more suburbia. Yeah. Um, so we're a lot of freestanding homes that are, you know, six to 800 square metre Dual locks. Uh, yeah, square meter blocks and a lot of dual dual locks or duplexes. Um, but a lot of our work is in the eastern suburbs around sort of Bondi Beach and and whatnot, where it's quite high dense volume of terraces, where it's you know twenty in a row or so with all the joining party walls, and and they're quite quite old and a lot of character and a lot of in a lot of heritage conservation zones. So our our market is generally in the inner city, uh, eastern suburbs, which is probably the the more higher end of, of Sydney, I'd say. Um, but in saying that, it's you know, we're sort of spread out everywhere. It's Sydney, it's hard to explain. I can't really speak for the whole of Australia, but there's probably five main areas that are all very different markets, um, all within about an hour's drive of each other. So um, uh, most of our work is, yeah, I grew up on, on a lot of high-end Victorian style terraces and, and Mark yeah, was the same thing. Mark so was, was very similar. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, we're probably we're doing starting to tap into new builds and, and dual locks um, and duplex market, which is uh, you know, we're finding learning a lot as well, but we're finding that they're very, very enjoyable to work on where we're not working with with walls that are you know, 100 mil out of plum and out of square and, and trying to tie in with all old lime render and trying to keep the old original heritage. It, it seems to be quite a quite a limited space. Like yeah, the, the, yeah, the large spaces are much easier to work in. Like you have to really schedule your deliveries and stuff in these small terrace blocks. Yeah. I mean, we've got a doorway that's that's a general door. It's, it's 800 mil wide, which oh, I'm not going to be able to convert that into inches. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but... Yeah, you know, like less than, I guess, less than the three feet wide entrance yep. door by, you know, eight foot high, uh, you know, seven foot high door and and trying to get a pack of delivery and concrete. How do you do that? Yeah. Yeah. So, it's, uh, so when you're working with these Victorian and these tight homes where you have tight entries, you know, how are you getting a large island countertop? How are you manufacturing that, you know, and getting that through the windows, you know, with the crane? Yeah. I mean, how does that even Lots of work? Yeah. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of heavy <laughs> manual handling, I think. We're, yeah. um, man, you name it, we've we've done it. We've, uh, you know, taken out neighbors' fences over time and, and we've craned things over the top and we've removed windows at the front and front doors and, most of it's, you know, we're we're blocking roads yeah. for you for extended a, amounts of time. You've <laughs> got to befriend most of um, the houses in the street. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. You, you definitely need them on your side. Big big part of it, you know, especially working on on party walls and and whatnot. And without if you if you don't have the neighbours on your side at the start of the project, it's a long long experience for both sides. So well, I love that you said that. It's funny because I had a contractor mentor of mine, and he said, "Hey, Brad, when you start a project, go." meet all the neighbors, give them your contact info, the superintendent. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because, you know, applying that, keeping a clean job site, being respectful of noise to your neighbors and stuff, it's a it's lead generation. We have a custom home now that was a direct referral from the neighbor who saw us work yeah. and 
our well, methods and said, I really respect that. I want to have you guys build my house. And so you're, you're saying that where you're in, at party walls, where you're sharing common walls with mm. homeowners that share the same wall, how even more important to build that relationship with your neighbor. Yeah, it's funny. We're, um, the project we're on now, it's our third, third house we've built on the same side of the street. The street's, you know, only got 20 houses in it. And, and another one where purely by chance, it's, um, in the inner city where, we're about to start work on our fourth project in that in that one small street. So, you know, it goes a long way. A lot of our guys, we we've drilled it into them and respect to them. It's it's always, hey, how you going? You know, come introduce ourselves at the start of the project. We really try and limit our power tools yeah. and you know, we'll we'll drop around a set of flowers if if something were to ever, you know, go wrong. And we just really try and keep that relationship with the neighbors because as you said it's not just about that project it's it's ongoing work and if they see you being respectful in the street and you know carpooling and limiting the car spaces and whatnot it seems to go a long way i think i feel like it's the one of the ultimate appraisals as you said as well you know to to work in the same street it means you've done something right the first time Mm -hmm. i love that you said that so how does you know getting into the design of your builds how does the design differ in Australia from what you see here in the US? I think, so my, my partner is based out of Canada. So I head over to, to North America every every 12 months or so. So I get to see a lot of, um, you know, the North American architecture and and whatnot. And I, I'd probably say, and obviously big big uh, followers of your stuff, Brad, but I think as a, as a scale, I mean, some of the things you're doing in the middle of the desert just blows our minds, you know. <laughs> It's um, oh, even moving some of those cactus. That just, yeah. that's just blowing my mind, you know. <laughs> Show everyone that. That's it's very true. impressive. Um, the main differences, I guess, would probably probably be scale. I mean, I know America's quite quite a large, excessive, and more excessive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I think a lot of oh, well, rather than the imperial versus metric side of things, <laughs> yeah. I guess um main differences would would be uh you guys we we have a lot of heat right but not much snow in sydney so trying to work out our insulation requirements and whatnot you know we don't really have a winter here as opposed to a lot of a lot of parts in the states i'd say so our our homes are generally designed to be open plan living and an indoor outdoor area um you know similar to me yeah 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 where you are as well right Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, we don't really have all those elements, I guess a lot of, uh, we have a thing called a neighbor's report and a basic certificate, which sort of tells us the targets we have to hit to become more thermally efficient, um, as part of the approval process. So, um, yeah. Do you have if, clients, do you have clients that are looking into homes that are more energy efficient or net zero passive houses, you know, that essentially want, you know, less carbon footprint or, Definitely. Yeah. We've been working, um, we've been using a, a fair bit of solar in our latest designs. Um, mm. so that was sort of Jace's idea mainly, but um, we, we yeah. really wanted to, to start giving back and leaving yeah. our footprint. Uh, you know, as builders, we, we share that responsibility of, you know, I can really be pushing for these sort of things in that, in that prelim process and in the sales process. And so we reached out to a bunch of renewable companies with, for water tanks and solar, yeah. which are probably just, touching the tip of the iceberg and whatnot, but really just sort of teamed up and, and expressed our mission and probably interviewed five or six different companies uh, before settling on one. And, and we, we decided to, uh, our goal by the end of the year was for every project we, we touch, whether it's a renovation or a new build, to have renewable energy um, as a standard. And we don't charge a margin or anything for the process. It's just a direct wholesale cost passed to the client to make it more accessible. Um, and that's something that, you know, we're hoping we can sit back and not only grow from that, but sit back in 20 years' time and be really proud of, of you know, reducing yeah. that carbon footprint. But I guess there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of more renewable energy uh, materials that are coming out. Yeah, you know? te- technology, I guess, is yeah. the best way to put it. But, um, yeah. So definitely, definitely getting more, more and more inquiries. How about yourself? I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. We, you know, we've really gotten into that, you know, we're doing some ICF homes and net zero. We have a net zero project that we're breaking ground on, which we're pretty excited about. And and one thing that I love about that house is we're actually putting in 
um, a water storage tank that's going to collect all the rainwater. So we get monsoons and heavy rains. Mm-hmm. And so it's going to collect all the water from the property in this uh, storage tank. And there's a filtration system built in that's run by solar power. And this is actually going to feed all the irrigation. So even though we're in the desert, wow. we do still have irrigation and plantings and right. they do need constant irrigation. So the the rainwater we capture, it's not drinkable, but it's going to be used to... Yes you know, for the landscape. So now they're not using a natural resource to water the landscape. Yeah, that's great. And I'm not sure if uh, if you're aware, but Australia's probably just come out of a quite a large drought. Um, yep. We seem to have copped it this last, <laughs> this yeah. last sort of six months big or so. Big fire, so, big drought. The fires, the drought, you name it, we get it over here. So, um, you know, our, our local council's pretty much made it requirement for a lot of projects that have to go through council approval that a rainwater storage tank of you know, anywhere between a thousand and five thousand liters is is essential. Um, so we've been doing a little bit, you know, a little bit of burying tanks under driveways and and just trying to make it accessible for our clients and trying to really. Most clients are wanting to put the rainwater yeah, tanks in. Like it, it's not even if it's not a requirement. Mm. Um, most clients, you know, lean towards wanting to use rainwater for their gardens and stuff. Yeah, which so, makes sense, especially here. You know. Yeah. So what do you guys see, you know, speaking about codes, you know, codes are changing, I'm sure, in Sydney as well as here constantly, you know, as this becomes more of a talking point. So what do you see as our key issues, you know, how the housing market will change, construction in Australia? What do you see as your big pain points and then what builders should be doing over the next 10 years? Uh, Look, I think, well, obviously renewables and and passive houses, I think, are going to become very, very popular as well. Um, I think moving forward, um, over the past sort of 10 years or so, we we hit quite a large housing boom in Australia and, and a lot of uh, developments in dual locks um, became prevalent. But especially with COVID and times, everyone seems to be, you know, sitting in their house and thinking how they can do things better. So No, it's funny you say that. So. Um... Talk to me about the the term Julock. Is that like a production community or like a, a development for homes, yeah. like in the suburbs? Yeah, dual occupancy. So it's it's a duplex. So anything, um, basically, the codes are in majority of Sydney. Anything over six hundred square meter block, which I think we worked out to be about six and a half thousand square feet, mm-hmm. um, you're basically allowed, you know, pending heritage zone and whatnot. But a lot of people were. We're knocking over the house. Splitting them down the middle and and putting two on it and selling one and either moving into that one, the second one themselves, or, Mm. you know, selling both and moving on. Um, I mean, a a lot of families were sort of knocking down their, you know, their small house and building two, moving into one and selling the other. So obviously getting a brand new home to live in and, and, you know, a bit of an investment opportunity. So especially probably generation of our of our parents and mums yeah. and dads that have had the house for 20 30 years or so um you know probably paid 200,000 back in the day and and they're probably valued at 1.2 1.3 million now wow. for them to for them to be able to knock that home over invest in a in a house for maybe 2 million um sell one of the sides for maybe one and a half and pretty much live in their one mortgage free it was a very very high trend um, over the past sort of six or seven years, and depending on the area, it was a lot of a lot of uh, people benefited from that boom, and it, it sort of took that slow decline as as we've obviously come into the end of that peak, which was around 2017. But towards the the end of 2017, started 2018, it really started to boost again, and then obviously COVID hit, and, and it's really thrown a spanner in the works. But yeah, that's probably quite a large trend, especially in Sydney. Yeah, well, it's interesting. You need that area anymore. Well, it's it's very similar. So I grew up in San Diego, you know, before oh, wow. moving to Phoenix. Yeah, and there's an island, Coronado Island, which some of our listeners may know. And you know, their homes they were long lots, really long lots. And a lot of the homeowners, at least when I was in high school, so this is in the 90s, you know, they would take their lot, they'd do a lot split, build another house that they'd move into, and then sell their existing. So they're kind of doing the same thing. Where now they're essentially moving into new builds, splitting the lot because they're these long lots you know from the street to the alley so very yeah. similar and and with covid it, it it's funny just on a side note you know my parents just had their 40th wedding anniversary so we sent them to australia and they oh, had arrived what? they were there in sydney for two days covid locked everything no. down, had to fly back 
kidding. No, so they're going to have to go back. But it's funny you say that because with the remodel world, what we've seen, I've seen clients now that are looking, okay, well, if I'm going to be locked in my home again, if this is going to be shut down for another virus in the future, I want my sauna. I want my cold plunge. I want my workout room. I need my office. And so we're seeing a lot of people looking at remodels to take existing places that they like location-wise. And now let's cater it to our lifestyle in case something happens again. Absolutely. Yeah. We're finding the same, you know, it's, I mean, not to get off topic, but the, the current market, it seems that, um, you know, we, we probably had this transition period early, probably early March when it, when it all became, you know, prevalent and, and everyone sort of panicked a little bit. And there was, there's about a month or so where no one really knew what was happening and, and people were pulling out of projects. And, you know, we had a, a lot of, a lot of builders around here that were losing, three, six, 12 months worth of work instantly, you know, deposits paid and, and it completely crumbling. But then after that sort of four weeks, and I'm not sure if it's the same over there, but uh-huh. there was a bit more certainty. And, you know, we're, we're at that one stage where we're glued to the TV, watching our <laughs> prime minister telling us if we can leave the house tomorrow or not, which was just a, a bizarre time. But um, we were quite fortunate in timing when our projects commenced. But after that sort of four or five week period, people sort of, realized and, and adapted so quickly that hey you know life goes on we're going to yeah. be in our house a lot let's let's spend this time and and let's look at what we hate and what we love and and let's really sketch up these plans and here we are three or four months later where we're sort of getting you know three or four calls a day sometimes of of clients Amazing. wanting to wanting to proceed and and look into plans and whatnot so Bit of a bit of a bizarre time, you know. I'm I'm not sure if that's the same market everywhere, but it's very know, similar to here. Yeah, yeah, very similar to yeah. yours. So so yeah. let me ask you guys. You know, that's uh, how did you guys meet? I mean, here you are, young entrepreneurs. Did you work together previously? I mean, how you know how did that relationship or decision to say let's go into business together? So we were like growing up, we were mutual friend, it's like mutual friend group. Mm. Um, not exactly the best of friends, but, mm. um, you know, ha- hung around the same, a few of the same people, saw each other at parties, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then I actually sort of probably started, um, talking to Jace more heavily when I was thinking of leaving my company and going to work for his, like the company that he was working for. We at the came time. from pretty similar backgrounds, yeah. uh, both worked for quite high-end builders around Sydney and and both sort of wore a lot of responsibility at an early age. Still as an apprentice, you know, starting to run projects and, and, you know, our bosses really took that step back, which at the time it's getting thrown in the deep end. It's it's a bit overwhelming, but you really look back at it now and and the value of being able to learn on someone else's time and that responsibility and, you know, really learning how to build, I think it sort of pushed us into that extended growth quite quite at an early age and we both we both left mm. sort of our bosses at the same time um i guess and sort of lent on each other a lot mm. um you know asking advice and sort of helping each other out where we could and um and then eventually sort of taking on a couple of projects together yeah we started off like you know the normal decks and pergolas and we both left our our bosses at the time and they both told us it was a, a big mistake and we don't know what we're doing and by all means they're probably right but you know throwing ourselves in the deep end we're both quite naturally ambitious and and i think that's you know if you've got that drive to sort of get you through you're going to find a way yeah. so we started off you know the small five ten grand decks and pergolas and and we learned a lot you know it's it's about learning dealing with clients which is something you know, on an, on a on a money scale, it's always a naturally awkward conversation that you probably never get to learn by working for anyone else. Uh, so early days, you know, we were sort of um, grabbing these smaller projects and evolved into sort of bathrooms, and we started running, you know, trades and whatnot through. And then we we landed a, a couple of bigger projects and just decided to sort of jump in and sort of split it 50-50. And, and uh, I think we did that yeah. a little bit casually for about 12 <laughs> months or so. And then um, we, we sort of, I got back from a bit of a Europe trip and, and sort of sat down with Mark and said, right, let's do this. Let's, yeah. you know, and that's pretty much where Beyond Build was formed. And, and then we were both sort of evolved from, you know, we're both carpenters by trade and we'd both be wearing a bag on, on each project. And we sort of realized that, Hey, a lot of our resources are chewed up on this small renovation. 
we've got to take on another one and you'll take one and I'll take one. So that happened and then we sort of took on a third and then I guess that's the stage where I sort of stepped yeah. back and Mark took more of a PM role um, and running a team and, you know, we grew and got a yeah. first apprentice and second apprentice and carpenter and, you know, learn along the way. Probably didn't make any money for a while. <laughs> a lot of yeah. learn, learn a lot of experience. So like all of us. Yeah, absolutely. But, yeah, I guess, you know, it yeah. kind of works. We're very, very different people so to speak it's Definitely. a very different taste in in architecture and, and building and design and yeah. um you know i'm i'm probably uh be- probably better off suited behind the desk and yeah. doing this pre-con stuff and the sales and whatnot and, and mark's just a weapon carpenter you know? he's just <laughs> He thanks, just loves thanks for, thanks for pumping me up. He's, he just loves it on site. You know, I've never seen yeah. anyone just work so efficiently and, no, and, yeah, and I, run a team. I find it hard to um, to get off site. Like, Jace has done a really good job of sort of being able to separate himself from site to, to looking after the office stuff, which, you know, has been great for me because I don't, I don't know how I would have done it otherwise. I, I just physically can't seem to get myself away from um, overseeing everything. I don't know. Don't know how, but it's like um, pulling teeth. I've got to lure him into the office <laughs> on a Friday afternoon with a case of beer sitting on his desk. It's the only way you'll get in here. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I think that's really good because what what's interesting about any company, right, is you alluded to it. Everyone thinks this is overnight success, right? Beyond build that you guys are overnight, which they don't realize the the time that goes in, the investment from you and figuring out, okay, what are we good at? What's our strength? What's our wheelhouse? The time vested in these small projects to develop into big ones. You know, you start with those small ones, start building a resume, marketing, but you start realizing your strengths. Okay, you know, Jason, you're really good on the front end business development, you know, the the budget side, and you know, Mark, you're good in the field. So let's divide and conquer. Let's, you know, mm-hmm. let's not overlap, let's not micromanage each other. You yeah. know, any company to be successful, you need less overlap. You need clear and direct handoffs and that's something i learned that our company's getting better at from all our team to understand their role their responsibility and then they can perform mm. you need to complement each other's you know strengths and weaknesses and you see it a lot of of guys that you know we get asked a lot oh how do you, you know how'd you find a partner and it's kind of it wasn't it, no i wouldn't say by by luck but it kind of just was one of those things yeah. that just evolved. And I think mean, trust is a huge issue. Yeah, a lot of guys seem to think, you know, you, you get two Marks or you get two Jasons, they're going to clash. And it just it just doesn't work. You definitely got to trust one another. And, and yeah. you know, you can't – you definitely can't oversee everything that the other person's doing or, you know, your time's, mm. you know, not spent well. But it's um, – mm. yeah, it's just more it comes down to a trust thing. Really. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's usually you've done that. I mean, that's the most important key to business, right? And you understand your yin and yang, and now mm-hmm. here you are. And I can't thank you guys enough. I mean, you've been amazing guests, offered some incredible insights to culture and branding, you know, mistakes we made, how to better that, and, and you know, how do we bring value? How do we set the stage, betting the customer, you know, with that fee in the beginning? And sure. especially make it time from Australia to come on. So so what's next for you guys? What What's upcoming? What are you excited about? Uh well, look on on sort of my front. I'll start. I'm actually building uh, building my own house with my partner at the moment, and you know it's chewing up a lot of a lot of time and energy and resources. But it's it's very rewarding. You know, we're sort of beyond builds projects are taking precedence at the moment, so we're there kind of Saturday Sundays and and whatnot, and just just building our our projects. Just a little sandstone cottage uh, the backs onto the bush, and sort of awesome. quite a quite a major renovation there. So that's. That's super exciting, and that probably takes up most of my spare time <laughs> and thoughts. Um, because we're we are starting to tap into a, a larger market um, with with some new some new coastal builds uh, located on the beach. Um, got a, a couple of more sort of larger projects and and whatnot, and you know just trying to keep that pipeline full and sail through to the other side of of this bizarre climate at the moment. But yeah, we're um, you know we're super excited and and it's got some got some really exciting stuff coming up and it's it's definitely keeping us on our toes for sure definitely and it's always more fun building on the ocean you got to deal with that salt so absolutely it changes <laughs> changes those building methods a little bit you know as you're going through to to from the wear and tear of that salty air you know ah oh, definitely definitely especially so we're yeah yeah it does so where can our listeners find you guys uh, mate, we're uh, our handle on Instagram is Beyond Build Constructions. Um, same as our Facebook search, and yeah, we're uh, our online website. I guess is just www.beyondbuildconstructions.com. 
but yeah, it's been been an absolute pleasure, Brad. Really appreciate you having us on. on. It's been a long time, long yeah. time listener, first time caller, and it's been an honor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that you said that. That's great. Well, Jason and Mark, can't thank you enough for making time. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Cheers, Thanks, mate. Bro. Well, it was really great to have Jason and Mark on with us today. And again, as they spoke about so many times, how important it is to understand our database costing, get the contractor involved, get the designer on board, the architect, work through that pre-construction, very much the same there in Australia as it is for us here in the United States. And that process can now help the clients have a much better experience. And and again, we need to understand our value. It doesn't matter if you're a designer, architect, or builder, but help educate the client why there's a cost, the time involved that goes behind it, whether you're charging for a, a proposal or a consultation, help them understand, you know, our time's valuable, and but there's a lot that we offer too. And it's so important for us to apply in our business. And again, find ways to build that company culture team lunches, team events, uh, group text, whatever it may be to build that camaraderie. Company culture is everything. What we deal with is very difficult at times and we all have these challenges. So make sure you're spending that time with your team and building those relationships and your company will be much better for doing so. Big thanks to all of you again. If you can go on and please give us a five-star rating, really helps us with uh, our podcast growth. And again, thanks for the continued support. If there's any guests or topics that you want to hear from, or us to discuss, please reach out, email, and we will address those. Thank you.